This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. Today, we are joined by Will Hackett, Head of European Fintech Practice at Pangea. Welcome, Will. Thank you, Emma. Great Lovely to have you here. here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Pleasure's mine. It's fun. Thank you for having me. It's actually the fourth time I think we're seeing each other this week. It's been a busy week yeah, at yeah. Cybos. Oh, yes. It's been full tilt, but great fun. Yeah. Amazing, amazing event. Very well run by all involved. And lots of good content, and hopefully we'll be discussing a lot of it today. Tell our listeners about you. So I work for a company called Pangea. Pangea works with both technology and banks to effectively bring new propositions to market. And the primary focus we have around technology is working with B2B fintechs around their go-to-market. And then on the consulting side, we do a bit of work around challenger banks. But what about you, Will? Oh, Tell me. our listeners about I, I thought you Will wanted Hackett. the corporate answer. I tried <laughs> to be really official. I've got my bullet points in my head, but no. Um, so London lad, finally flew the nest in 2015 when I moved across to Singapore for a bit. I was working for a banking software company uh, that whole time, quite a big one. Which one? Uh, a company called Temenos. Oh, right. Yeah, fantastic company. They really opened my eyes to the fin tech world. I got in just after the crisis in sort of mid to late 2000s. And then, yeah, has been sort of through the advent and growth of it, which has been incredibly exciting. Because when I used to tell people what I did, banking and software, it was sort of an eye roll moment at 22, whatever it was, 21, when I started working at Terminos. And now it's really trendy. Yeah. That's very helpful for dinner conversation and things like that. And it was evidently a very good platform to start your career because you are now head of European fintech and you are very young well at least you look young so yeah. tell us about the journey and then I'm keen to hear more about what you're doing at Pangea. So I was super super lucky at landing at somewhere like Temenos just because it's an incredible client base they've got great technology they've got some very very smart people I've actually followed one of their big thinkers a guy called Ben Robinson to Pangea and him and the other founder Mark along with uh, the strategist Dan were um, pretty convincing when they talked to me about moving over. Um, they had a great vision, but at Temenos particularly, it was the opportunity to work on some some pretty unusual and exciting projects around around large transformations. And I don't know if you know much about the core banking space. Can't it's, profess to be an expert. I, I wouldn't want you to be. That would be much less exciting. Than that. <laughs> it's basically the system of record that sits at the back end. So it's sort of the generator downstairs that no one really sees, but keeps all the lights on and our computers humming and all that good stuff. And actually, the idea of replacing it to most banks is tantamount to going in for heart surgery. So it's not something you need to enter lightly. But much like getting a new ticker, it means you can do all sorts of things that before you could never conceive if you are running on an older one or you're, you're looking to transform into a new one. So yeah, it was a really cool space. We worked on a lot of business model design. And then that allowed me to take it through my career and, and work on some, some pretty exciting propositions since. Probably the one I'm most proud of, though, was in 2014, Temenos started working on a cloud proposition. And I got in at the ground floor 
more of that, which was super fun. Working with some incredible guys, there's a guy called Murray Gardner who runs their financial inclusion practice. This guy, I'm not understating this, he's probably touched tens, if not hundreds of millions of people's lives through the work he's done. And his focus is really around on providing access to finance to the rural and urban poor. And Temnos has played a great part in that by helping banks lower their unit economics so that they can serve those customers. And also with incredible partners in the space to deliver services through mobile phones and things like that, which to us in London seems completely alien, but obviously the financial inclusion topic is quite big. Especially being a South African myself, I can completely relate. You know the story, right? And what was super cool is working in that team for for four years, five years. At the very end, we signed um, a bunch of really progressive partners like Temasek, the Singapore Sovereign Funds holding company Fullerton was one of the, the key leaders in that space. And Microsoft basically started to take more and more notice of us as we were consuming so much of their cloud services. And Microsoft got a great way of coming at marketing. They say, hey, let's not market our brand, let's market our client's brand, which is really, really slick. And so they shot this huge TV commercial around the success of Temenos in increasing financial inclusion. And they sort of flew out a film crew to Myanmar and to Singapore, which is the region I was running. And, and then we sort of flew into very rural parts of Myanmar and shot this amazing one minute commercial, which was funnily voiced over by Akon, the singer. You know, no way. Locked up. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then this commercial started running and it was running in the airports and it was running during the Super Bowl. That for me was just one of those crowning glory moments because the key tagline was since launching our cloud service in particular, obviously there's a broader banking service, but just that piece, Temenos, which I was a key part of, had managed to bring financial inclusion to 10 million people oh, in just okay. a few years, that? which was uh, which was really, really cool and sort of made, uh, made a nice social impact feeling for me as well. How cool is that to be able to make such an impact at such an early stage of your career? Well, We're talking millions. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's probably the advantage of working for a big company, right? Yeah, and, use the and platform. not being that bright. You know, if I'd been very smart, I could have worked <laughs> for a small and done it. But it was an incredible journey. Now I understand how you've gotten to your title today. And I'd like to hear more of that. How are you making impact in your day-to-day now? Tell us about the work that you do. And- so on my side, I work with a lot of, a lot of B2B tech, as that's my background. And particularly working with banks on new propositions and things. And one of the big ones at the moment is challenger brands that are coming out there, right? It's, of course, there's the Trailblazers, Monzo and Revolut in Europe. And obviously, there's the big boy New Bank in South America. And then there's within that scope, there's then newer arrivals who are targeting even lesser underserved niches. You know, the, the high street consumer is pretty well served in the UK, but SMEs are notoriously poorly served. Underserved, yeah, we're at a day at the moment hosted by Motive Partners at London Stock Exchange um, where a number of different technologists are pitching and also we've got a number of banks here who are talking about how their programs, their venture programs, their innovation programs string together all these propositions and actually deliver value to the business. And I think for bigger banks, there's so much that can be done in that area to actually challenge these brands who are coming in with much lower unit economics, much tighter propositions around a single service. And actually the banks still have a massive, massive advantage across their customer base to offer differential services. 
So like there's these these one guys that we're working with who are trying to solve a monster problem in the SME space that currently is just too difficult for banks to handle. And that's the risk that currency fluctuations have on small to medium enterprises. And why can't banks solve that? Bang on. So to be really honest, it's too expensive for them. The amounts that an SME would be trying to hedge as they're doing, you know, cross-border payments to a, a supplier is, you know, we're in a globalized world despite what's happening politically. Ultimately, our suppliers are in different jurisdictions, are in different worlds. Therefore, we have to be able to play with them and, and exchange money and currency and, and have those systems of value open. But for an SME not to be able to protect themselves, ensure the fact that there could be currency fluctuation, as we see, is an incredible risk. And it's simply because the tools the traditional tools are really not designed for smaller businesses because typically it's through voice channels, so guys and girls picking up phones who are then helping and guiding you through it. Those are really designed for big ticket jobs, corporates, you know, like a BP calling you up and wanting to do a, an eight, nine figure deal, right? That's not realistic for an SME, but they still face the same challenges. What the company we're working with called AsureHedge do is they've managed to really smooth out that service into a highly intuitive self-service channel that they can then effectively allow an SME to protect its risk. But that service is offered white labeled or via an API if the bank chooses through their channel. So for a bank, they can immediately start offering a new proposition that's defensible against a challenger brand who is effectively offering a smaller portfolio. It's much more aligned to what an SME is likely to be facing, aside from you know the need for credit, which is a systemic risk or issue in our um, in our economy. So for that, I think there's a ton of value that banks can start to generate around it that's still of incredible interest, aside from just a shiny new UI. Awesome. And then I know you also do a lot of work with, could I call them SMEs? Well, fintechs. Yeah. <laughs> Tell our listeners. Okay, here's an example of a bank getting it really bright. So um, open banking, everyone knows about it. It was the hot topic or very hot topic at Cybos. And I'm sure it will still be going on for much more time to come. But it's like an opportunity to offer really new and exciting business models. And I think one of the banks I've admired for a long time is Nationwide, who have got an open banking for good program. And they've cherry picked a sensational selection of guys and girls who are truly trying to make a difference and actually use fintech for good. Because it's quite easy to, you know, offer cheaper credit or, yes, you know, exactly. hook someone onto a new type of and lending product. the market is completely concentrated. with Yeah. And, and, you know, you read the paper today. It's sort of late September and there's already continuing backlash against the P2P lending space. So yes. it was really interesting to see Nationwide coming at this problem. And actually, the company that we're working with in line with that as well is a company called Trezio. And Trezio's proposition is around self-employed, particularly those originating from the gig economy. That's sort of where the thesis started. And it's evolving out into the broader self-employed workforce, which is around four, four and a half million people. And it's growing extremely rapidly. So the challenge that a self-employed person may face is that income is not sort of predictable. Income can be highly unpredictable in exchange for having total freedom in their lifestyle and the way they choose to work, the hours they choose to work, who they choose to work for. There's obviously then that financial insecurity. And Trezio tries to, to correct that by providing the ability to do income smoothing so that even I if you that. don't work because you're sick, because you take holiday, 
Trezio sits in between you and the employer as a white labeled service for nationwide or actually as an, an unwhite labeled service for, for nationwide and uh, effectively allows the self-employed person to continue to be paid as if they were in a more traditional salary role. And okay, you think, well, hang on, most people have you know overdrafts, most people have a credit card. Yes, yes, both are true. Credit cards are less useful for this sort of stuff. But actually, there's a big change coming down the line in relation to the way that overdrafts are handled. So Towards the end of this year, Nationwide themselves have announced, and they've been a trailblazer in this, just the impact of it is, and it's sort of 45 plus percent, maybe give or take, that people are now going to be hit by, which I think even as a consumer myself, I don't want that. Yeah, but if you're self-employed that. and your mechanism to avoid financial insecurity that comes from irregular pay, it's actually probably quite a useful mechanism, that overdraft. And now suddenly it's going to become almost a threat to your business and you can find yourself very quickly in some serious debt. So for a a business like Trezio, it's an incredible market event for them to build traction around and to, to start engaging not just with banks, but also with work platforms, employment platforms, everyone from Uber and Deliveroo through to more traditional ones that you, uh, you know, like taxi companies and delivery vans and things like that, and construction workers and labor markets and all these other other wonderful areas that are growing and allowing people to have lifestyle flexibility so that they can spend more time with their families, so that they can focus on things that matter to them when they matter, but also the ability to to work. Financially secure. Bingo. Yeah, wow. That is awesome. I love that because it really goes back to the first question, which was, how are you making impact? And that really is a fantastic case study of that. Most of the guests on this podcast read our newsletter every week. So we thought you'd enjoy it too. It's called Brain Food. It comes out every Sunday morning and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. Can we move on to what you were just telling me before we started recording? You mentioned you've just released a report. Yes. I'll leave it to you. Okay, so report may be overhedging it, but but this is sort of from the past. So um, so the background I come from is around the system of record, the core banking world. You know, for people who aren't familiar with banking applications, it's effectively the general ledger database and a huge matrix of accounts. And... In another context, another system of record example would be like a customer relationship management system, like a CRM, what Salesforce is. And if you look at the way that the banking market has been structured over the last years, open banking is going to massively change the way that products are distributed. So today, banks have traditionally had a bit of a monopoly. You know, you go to Lloyd's, you get a loan, sweet. You go to, you know, Nationwide, you have an amazing savings account. Right, nice and clear. Obviously, in the last few years, since the fintechs have been winning licenses and disaggregating, we've seen a bit of a change in the landscape. But with open banking, what we now have is the ability for a company to sit in front of a bank, consume its services, and provide effectively their own products using a bank. So banks have an option here to either provide their own products and also third-party products, effectively becoming a marketplace, which I think is where the more progressive banks will head, or quickly becoming commoditized. The choice is theirs. (laughs) Yeah, right. The choice is theirs. I think the consumers will really make that choice. But the appetite and the adoption we're seeing of products coming out of this space is, is tremendous. So for us, the impact that will then have on the banking software market is that the way systems are reviewed is going to change. 
So traditionally, you have your system of record, which sits at the back. And it's all about going as fast as humanly possible at the lowest possible unit economic cost with the least amount of errors. And then at the top, you have a system of engagement, which is, you know, your mobile apps, your front end experience that you get. And where we've been traditionally going is to build in the complexity of originating products, onboarding that whole product factory, the manufacturing piece of banking that has traditionally been developed in either the system of record or the front-end system, the system of engagement. And it's been slowing it down. It's been making it more complex. There's tons of data that's locked in there. So when you look at industries which have already overcome this, like Salesforce is probably the best example of this space, they've realized that actually quite early and they've begun to pull apart those two systems and actually create an orchestration layer which actually is starting to prove more and more value around the ability for third parties to integrate into those applications and offer ancillary services. You know, so you look at how Salesforce has created market, it's app store where any application can be built on there. So what's happening in the industry is creating a split where the system of record is being pulled down into the, into sort of the back end focus. So it's around efficiency, ultimately unlocking a lower unit economic cost with which you can serve your customer. And then the front end is actually becoming more and more thin as it's actually just about the unique experience and it needs to be changed based on the customer profile, the user, etc. But the orchestration of the products that you should be seeing, the data that needs to be pulled to better understand you, all of those different levers, actually we're starting to see sits in a middle layer or a system of intelligence. And we see that being used as a, a mechanism to orchestrate new business models. Wow. A fantastic answer. Thank you so much. Rich content there. I'm learning as I go. I wanted to touch on, well, actually, it goes to your last statement of new business models. Where do you think banks are going? I know you said consumers will decide. But where do you think their business models are going? Will they be marketplaces? But then how many marketplaces can you have? (laughs) Where do you think it's going? I think when you look at the conditions for banks to move. There's a ton of examples where they are getting some really nice traction, right? So first is probably new markets, right? So when a bank sees an opportunity that's outside their space, their geography, etc. You know, Marcus, Goldman Sachs retail proposition, particularly in the UK, is a really solid example of the success that they can have there. But I think for me, that's going to become harder and harder because as we're all in a connected world, you know, I can tweet at someone in France, you know, you can fl- quickly fly somewhere. I just, I just don't see that geography is going to be a competitive advantage for a huge amount of time. I think localization is key. That's a nuance of knowing who your customer is. Yes. But, you know, what's the difference between being a London lad in Singapore versus my experience of being, you know, a London lad at home? Surely it should be at least consistent in some way that they communicate and engage with me. Obviously, my needs may be different, therefore show me a different product set. But ultimately, I feel that the way that one connects will still be the same. Another area, another condition for change is obviously the mega trends, right? Or the future of us all. And that's the emerging middle class, right? And that's from a lot from the developing world whose needs are going to drive tremendous change in the way that we all live. So like you look at most of emerging Africa or developing Africa or, you know, countries that are really succeeding, you know, Kenya is the poster child for for financial inclusion and fintech. Ironically, USSD, which was the technology that M-Pesa, which is the mobile payments network that's been hugely successful in Kenya, the technology it was built on USSD actually was first used in the Philippines by a telco. Really? Yeah. So while Kenya, you know, is the poster 
poster child, yeah. they are not the mother. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the really cool thing about that space, though, is when you think about capturing a millennial on the high street, you know, they're probably in a certain demographic. But really, that customer relationship, that cost of acquisition and that lifetime value of the customer is pretty linear. We know what that's going to be like. But when you look at somewhere like Kenya, where M-Pesa, the mobile payments network, captured you know one in seven Kenyans or even more probably, it's actually an incredible opportunity to serve those customers at an earlier stage in their life, a financial life in terms of the breadth of their needs. So what was really smart about the M-Pesa work was that when Commercial Bank of Africa, which was a customer at Temenos that I crossed over with a bit, when they realized that actually if they struck a deal with M-Pesa, who had effectively a window into millions of Kenyans, they could actually offer incredibly important financial products, which a telco just physically can't because they don't have the license, you know, the balance sheet, all that. And what they realized was actually the real offering, and this is going back a few years, and obviously there's been a huge evolution with microcredit. It's faced a massive number of challenges in the microfinance space. And and I won't go into that because I just wanted to talk about capturing opportunity that banks may see. CBA was able to effectively walk into the lives of millions of Kenyans and offer them an incredibly important product, the ability to take a micro loan. And that shows the ability of financial service providers to start working with and to start engaging people at a genuine need point in the developing world. And that for me is a tremendous, tremendous opportunity because, okay, not all of them will be CBA customers. Yes. But because of that relationship and because they have an account, the ease of which that customer can switch into another product with CBA and the ability to cross-sell and to capture that data and to understand that customer more at such a nascent on stage of the broader financial world is massive. And when you start to look at the markets that are untapped in the UK, SMEs, yes, right? And, and you think globally, actually. Globally. You then apply that into an emerging market and you think, hang on, I could actually start capturing incredible journeys that customers are going through. And there are incredible businesses that are doing stuff like that. But yeah, I think that's a really interesting area around the financial inclusion piece. Thank you, Will. So all of this fantastic content you said was leading into a report, which you didn't actually tell us about. I know, I'm sorry. Fair enough, because there's so much to talk about. But tell us about the report. It's in the nascent stages. When we look at the fintech space, and actually just tech generally, there's a ton of content around fundraising, investors, you know, and all the misspending that comes with that. (laughs) But, um, you know, we're here on, you know, the same week that obviously WeWork's gone through managerial change. And, you know, Uber's seen similar stories, and I'm sure fintech will one day also, you know, and it's, it's pretty shocking the amount of money that some of these companies raise in a good way and in a bad way. But for me, I think there's very, very little in this space about going to market which is really about success right how i then scaled my business not from a how i built this um you know perspective but as in like fundamentally there's a lot of preconceptions out in the marketplace you know we hear more and more about proof of concepts pilots innovation programs accelerators you know all these incredible corporate ventures all these incredible things which are designed to smooth 
the process of a startup to engage with a bigger institution. And I mean, banks and insurers at the even bigger end are ginormous institutions with incredibly complex procurement processes because of the risks that they could face. But there's very, very little insight for B2B businesses around that. And I think from our side, we think there's an opportunity to spend more time talking to the market to understand, you know, how did you for example, at a tangible level, unlock that first tier one deal? Did you go through an accelerator program? Did you do five pilots? Because some of our clients that we talk to, and we've got one incredibly successful one who's already working with a tier one bank, has just gone straight in at the deep end and done the sort of size deals that, you know, a multinational provider of technology would be proud to do. Oh. That's what the report's for. <laughs> so, okay, the suspense. So what we're trying to do now is talk to the market more and more. And if anyone listens to this, please reach out to us. A lot of people are going to be listening to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, from our side, we're trying to understand what those conditions are for someone or a B2B proposition to be more and more successful. And also, what are some of the common misconceptions, myths? I find that debunking area is pretty ripe, as there's a lot of smoke and mirrors we all like to throw up you know success has many fathers and all of that but it's really interesting to know do a bit of a paternity test and find out who it was that's fascinating and we will be showcasing that on brain food on our newsletter the work we're doing there should be coming out hopefully towards the end of the year probably early next and we're doing that in conjunction with some some pretty cool partners there's one uh, really great community that we're involved with called VC Innovations they run the fintech talents events they're awesome but the actual report i was talking about earlier relating to banking systems and the changing landscape of that that's actually an article that's out at the moment and that was written by our head of strategy our head of strategy practice Ben Robinson who's a legend as well so yeah definitely that will be in in brain food and i'd highly recommend reading it On Ben Robinson, Mm. you mentioned earlier, well, you just said he's a legend. And you also mentioned Mark and Dan and how they were pivotal in you joining Pangea. Tell us about them and how they've mentored you and tell us about the other role models that you have. I mean, you're young and you are certainly a leader. So obviously there have been some people who have shaped you into the very inspiring person that you are. So do tell us. Yeah, there's been some incredible people who I've had the pleasure to work with and work for. It's a laundry list, right? We're made up based on the sum of our parts. And I believe those parts are the people that we spend our times with and the relationships we have. Plug for a TED talk on the greatest study on happiness and the sole indicator for happier people is quality, loving relationships. So yes, I'm a, I saw that one. It was great. So uh, in the Pangea team, I mean, there's there's actually many more amazing people than just those three gents. You know, we've got Rita, who's our COO. She's a phenomenal leader from the life science space. So within Pangea, we have two practices. We have the fintech practice, which is a, a lot of our background. And then we also have a life science practice, as we see those as the two major enterprise technology markets. But ultimately, the vision is to be in all major vertical verticals and supporting all major markets. So yeah, just to the mentor thing, yeah, Ben is an incredible guy. Not only is he probably one of the smartest people I know, but he, he's got this innate ability to explain incredibly complicated ideas in a really simple way that don't make you feel stupid. And actually, because you're laughing the whole way through, (laughs) you really enjoy it. Dan, he's, he's again, probably smarter than Ben, but Ben tries to keep that. That's that's on the download, best kept secret. Um, And he's an incredible thinker. I mean, most of my good ideas I've regurgitated because of Dan. And Mark, Mark's actually a bit of a pioneer. So Mark, 
is one of those commercial leaders who's done it all. He's, you know, been part of an IPO team for a multi-billion dollar software company. He's one of the few men or women who've managed to take a successful technology business in America and scale it to millions and millions in dollars of revenue in Europe, which, which is, was that? that was Model N, which to say is, is a tricky thing. I mean, you may hear, you know, Europe is the graveyard of American tech companies and vice versa, you know, America is the graveyard of European tech companies. So the people who have done that is incredibly, incredibly impressive. And um, that's actually one of the core theses that our company is built around and that where we really can help a B2B tech company is when you are looking at new markets, geographies or verticals, there isn't a huge amount of risk that a business must undertake to make that successful. And a lot of guys and girls have done it before and they have 100% the ability in them to do it again. But in the same way, if there is opportunity to reduce your risk, if there is opportunity to further increase your returns, why not work with partners like Pangea to be able to not only deliver it at a faster, cheaper rate, but also increase that likelihood for you guys to be successful. So that's sort of our our core thesis. There's two other guys that have mentored me along the way. There's actually the guy who gave me my start at Tamanos. That's a guy called Mark Filippo. He's a legend. If anyone knows him, he's one of the most charming South Africans I've met after you. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Mark was incredibly formative in my growing up. Then obviously Murray Gardner, who's the guy who got me into financial inclusion, was uh, a tremendous, tremendous influence on my life. He's one of the key reasons I moved to Asia. He's one of the key reasons I spent so much time trying to make a difference in that space. And actually there is a third because everyone's always got to have have a, a figurehead. That's my stepdad, David, who's a true pioneer in his space. He's gone through it all from, you know, working in South America for a tech company to running a listed technology business as a CEO to now making the transactions and, and sort of managing the M&A's process for private equity firms and things like that. So yeah, he's a bit of an inspiration as well to me in terms of the full career. And you know, you actually reminded me, I'm actually reading a book at the moment, The Everything Store, uh, which is the story of Jeff Bezos. And one of the things that is spoken about is how he never left a conversation without learning. Mm. And that just shows a lot of what you are today is from surrounding yourself with incredible people. Mm. And so I'm going to take that as one of my lessons from this conversation amongst many. So thank you for honestly, such a fascinating conversation. It's incredible how much content is in your head. It's been awesome. And I look forward to well, it's great. We see each other regularly. So I look forward to many more of these. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much, Motive. Thank you very much, Emma. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry 
industry, the economy, motive partners or motive partners' investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.